to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. jumping right into things today. Like DJ said, we're in this series right now called Prodigal, where we are digging into the parable of the prodigal son that's found in Luke 15. And this is a story that Jesus told a crowd of people to share with them how God loves lost and broken people, people who are just like us. And ultimately, this is a story about grace. Grace meaning getting something better than we deserve. Grace meaning endless Second chance is grace, meaning there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so what we're doing in this series is we're focusing on a different character in the story each week and looking at how they interacted with grace. Last week, we talked about the main character, the prodigal son, and how he received grace from his father. And this is the perspective that we talk the most about in church because it's the one that we connect with the most, right? Like we've lost our way, we've messed up, we've hit rock bottom, and yet God still gives us grace. There are no strings attached. We don't have to earn it. It's freely given from a good God who loves us. But today what we're going to do is we're actually going to read back through the beginning of the story. And this time, instead of focusing on the son, we're going to focus on the father in the story. And so if last week was about receiving grace, this week is all about giving grace. In the Bible, there are many different ways that people can give grace or show grace to someone else. Uh, We could do it with our words. In Colossians 4, 6, it says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Back in the day, salt had three main uses. It could preserve food, it could sanitize or sterilize food, and it could season food. And so Paul, who wrote this, is saying, let our conversations be seasoned with grace, that both the content of the words we speak and the method in which we do it matters. And I think we can all agree right now, especially, we need more of this type of grace, because now it feels like people use their words to knock others down and to hurt people and to create division and tension instead of bringing grace into the world. And so one of the ways that we bring grace to other people is through how we talk to others, Another way we can give grace to people is through serving them. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.10. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The word gift in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, is actually the word charisma. And the root of that word is charis, which means grace, right? They come from the same word. So what Peter is saying is that the gifts that we have The talents and skills we have, the resources we have, are gifts of grace that we use to bring grace to other people. 
Paul actually expands on this in Romans 12 when he says this. He says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. The word prophesy simply means to profess or to proclaim. He continues, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God is giving you, the, giving you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. And so God gives us grace, and we become grace-filled people who then serve others, and in turn, they experience grace as well. And so we bring grace into this world by serving others, not because they deserve it, but because God has given us these gifts so that we can use them for other people. And a third way that we see grace given in the Bible is through forgiveness. And that's actually the type of grace that we're going to focus on as we jump back into the story of the prodigal son today. And so we're going to read back through the beginning of this, starting in Luke 15, verse 11. And this is what it says. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Last week, we talked about how this meant that the son was actually wishing that his father was dead so he could take the money that was set aside for him. So thinking about that perspective, putting ourselves in the father's shoes, what would you do if that were you? Some of you are parents, you actually know what you would do because you've experienced this before with your children. Right? Your son is wishing you dead and demanding the inheritance that you worked your butt off for your whole life. Right? He didn't earn that money. He didn't earn that property, that business. He was just born. But here he is telling you to die and give him the money. What would you do? How would you feel? Right? I know how I would feel. I would disown him. My three-year-old Harper is in peak three-nager mode right now. Um, she is incredibly opinionated and wants to do everything by herself. And when she doesn't get her way, she throws herself on the ground or the couch or her bed or the floor in the middle of Mission Barbecue and just starts crying. It's hard, okay? Being a parent is hard. Uh, and on Friday, she asked me if she could get some water because her new favorite thing is to drag a chair to the refrigerator and fill a cup up by herself. And so she grabbed the chair and she started to move it across our kitchen, but I was in the way because I was doing dishes. So she took the chair and just started running it into my legs over and over and over again, going, ugh, dad. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so, so I stopped doing dishes and I helped her move the chair to the right spot, but that's a rookie mistake because she started to lose it because she wanted to do it all by herself. And so I told her, you can push the button and get the water by yourself. And so while weeping, tears are just streaming down her face, she pushed the button and put about half of a sip of water in her cup. And then I made the mistake of pushing the button again to give her more water. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> Listen, I'm a young parent, right? So I push the button, I give her more water, we fill it all up. And then while crying, she gets off the chair, she walks up to the sink, and she dumps all of her water out. And so I went to my computer and I started to design some flyers that I could post in my neighborhood that says free to a good home with her picture on it. <laughs> and listen, if this is how I react to a power struggle with my three-year-old, if my adult son wished me dead and then pulled a Jean Ralphio Saperstein money, please, he would be dead to me. <laughs> First service did not get that joke. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Goodness. Right? But if people ask me, what about your youngest son? I'd be like, what son? Wouldn't you? 
Right? Wouldn't you do the same thing if you were the father in that scenario? Well, as the story goes, the son wastes all of his money on prostitutes and reckless living. He ends up broke, homeless, and stuck in a pigsty, feeding pigs, envious of the life the pigs are leading. When Jesus says in this story that he has this light bulb moment where he realizes that his life sucks. Right? Jesus says that he comes to his senses and he says, I can go back home to my father who treats his hired servants better than this. At least I can get that for my life. And so that's what he does. The story continues in verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he was found. So let the party begin. And this is a beautiful moment, right? The father doesn't punish him. He doesn't accept his offer to be a hired servant. He embraces his son and says, I can't believe you are alive. We need to celebrate. The father chooses to give grace to his son through forgiveness. Right? And don't miss this. Let's, let's read back verse 20 again. It says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The father made a decision to forgive long before he ever saw his son. He didn't wait to hear what his son had to say before deciding to give him grace. He didn't wait to see if his son was filled with remorse. He didn't wait until there was repentance. Right? There was when he came to his senses and turned away from that life of sin. That's repentance. But the father didn't know that was what was happening. Right? The father chose forgiveness long before he ever knew his son would come home. And that's why he went running to him. And I imagine that when reading this story from the father's perspective, there's a really big part of you that looks at this father and thinks, I just don't know if I could do that. Right? I don't know if I could give him grace after what he said. I don't know if I could forgive him after what he did. Right? And I feel that. I feel that in my own life. But one of the things that we have to wrestle with when it comes to this story and ultimately following Jesus is that grace and forgiveness are not just for us to receive, but for us to give as well. Lisa Turkhurst wrote in her book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, I am a soul who likes the concept of forgiveness until I am a hurting soul who doesn't. Right, did any of you feel that? Right, I know that I do. When it comes to receiving grace and needing that for my own life, I am all about it. But when it comes to giving grace to other people, I'm hesitant. To be honest, it feels a little bit like this. I'm sorry for doing this. Like I couldn't get this idea out of my brain all week, but this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right? We love receiving grace. We love this idea that we are the prodigal son, that we can return home, that we can be embraced. But we struggle with the idea of being the father in this story right? and giving that grace and showing that grace and offering that forgiveness. Right? And so that's why we have to talk about this today, giving grace through forgiveness. I do have a few caveats, though, before we jump into things uh, when talking about forgiveness. The first is that I don't know your pain and I don't know what hurts you've experienced at the hands of other people, but I imagine they're big. Anytime we talk about the topic of forgiveness, this is a hard topic for people, because it's, and I know that because it's a hard one for me as well. So my goal today is I'm not going to tell you who to forgive or when to forgive them, 
But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what God says about forgiveness and what forgiveness looks like. And if this was just me up here giving my opinion, then you should probably ignore it. But because this comes from Scripture, right, because so much of what we're learning about today comes from Jesus, I think it's something we need to wrestle with and try to figure out for our own lives. The second thing is that forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. And forgiveness doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with that person. And while we're not actually going to talk about those two ideas today, um, if you're interested in learning more about those or like boundaries through forgiveness, we've talked about these in the past. Um, and so we actually put them up here for you. So if there's more you want to learn about forgiveness, I would encourage you to go back and find these. Um, in 2018, we did a series called F-Bomb that was all about forgiveness. In 2019, I talked about how you end toxic relationships. In 2020, we talked about unfriending people. In 2021, we, we actually kicked off the year with this idea of how to win in relationships, and forgiveness was a key element to that. And so all of these are on the topic of forgiveness and relationships. So how do you move forward with those relationships? When do you put up boundaries? When do you put up walls? And so if that is something that you wrestle with today, I would encourage you, check out those on YouTube or whatever platform you listen to podcasts. So let's talk about this topic of forgiveness. The word forgive means to release or let go. Lisa Turkur said that forgiveness is both a decision and a process. And in the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey says that forgiveness alone can halt the cycle of blame and pain, breaking the chain of ungrace. And so the first thing about grace and forgiveness that we learn from the story of the prodigal son is that grace is unfair. Grace is unfair. And you'll see for today that the word grace and forgiveness are ultimately interchangeable. So grace is unfair, but forgiveness is unfair. Grace is a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. I think this is why people find karma so attractive in Hinduism, right? Because karma is all about this idea of fairness. You get what you deserve. In fact, Hindu scholars have calculated with mathematical precision how long it would take for one person's justice to work itself out and ultimately how many reincarnations they believe that you would have to experience in order to pay off the debt that your sin creates. It's in like the hundreds of thousands of reincarnations. Right? And people like this idea because it feels fair. Right? It's punishment. Feels fair. Revenge feels fair. That's what we want. I still remember where I was the night it happened. It was October 9th, 1996. It was a school night, and I was glued to my television in our living room because my parents were letting me stay up late to watch the Orioles play their most hated rivals, the New York Yankees, and the ALCS. You guys thought this was a serious story. It's not. In the bottom of the eighth inning, the Orioles were up four to three when it happened. Some of you are already feeling it in your soul. Derek Jeter hit a deep fly ball to right field. Tony Tarasco camped under it, ready to make the out, but then the unthinkable happened. 12-year-old Jeffrey Meyer reached over the fence into the field of play and snatched the ball with his glove. It's blurry because it's a very long time ago. This sits in my soul. Umpire Rich Garcia eventually ruled it a home run, even though at best it would have been a double, but we all know Tony Tarasco would have caught that ball. Right, and this tied the game. The Yankees would then go on to win in the 11th inning on a Bernie Williams walk-off home run, and this was the beginning of the end of the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> they would go on to lose the series. The Yankees, of course, go on to the World Series. They beat the Braves. And since then, the Orioles have had 19 losing seasons and have only made the playoffs four times in 25 years. And I'm just going to be really honest with you all. For a long time, I hated Jeffrey Meyer. I did. Some of you kind of feel that same way. But I think it was a little bit worse because I actually had this picture up in my room for all of my childhood and into my college years because I wanted to forever remember who my enemy was. 
Not proud of this. Some of this was pre-Jesus, some of it wasn't. But to make matters worse, when Facebook came out in college, I actually found him on social media, and I sent him a friend request because I was going to find him and destroy him. He was in Connecticut, right? I wanted revenge. I wanted revenge, which was fair, which was him being thrown out of the game and the Orioles winning and us not being cursed for 25 years, okay? We like revenge. That's what we want in our life. Right? We want revenge on our ex-wife for taking the kids in the divorce, so we do everything we can to make things harder on her. We want revenge on that friend who gossiped about us, which resulted in ended friendships just so they could get more attention. We want revenge on that parent who walked out of our lives. We want revenge on the teacher who embarrassed us in front of the class. We want revenge. And in this story, if the father chose revenge, we wouldn't blame him. Instead of embracing his son, if he punished his son we would understand. In fact, many of us wouldn't see anything wrong with that because that is fair. But grace is unfair. And here's the thing about revenge. This comes from Philip Yancey. The major flaw in revenge is that it never settles the score. Revenge is a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. But the problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. That thing that you are looking for, that fairness that you are looking for, never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain, and both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded. And the escalator never stops. It never lets anyone off. Right? And so forgiveness may be unfair, but at least it provides a way to halt the juggernaut of retribution. Revenge keeps us trapped. Fairness keeps us trapped but forgiveness sets us free. Here's the second thing that this story points out. Grace is a lifestyle, right? Forgiveness is a lifestyle. And here's what I mean by this. There's a story in the Bible about an interaction between Jesus and Peter that's about forgiveness. And specifically, it's about how many times we should forgive someone. And this is what happens in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, this reminds me of every time I'm at my table with my kids for dinner, and they still have food left on their plate, and so they try to barter with me about how many more bites they have to take before they get down, right? They literally haven't eaten a thing, and my kids are like, how about three bites? Like, like this is super generous. It's like, no, eat your meal. And, but that's what Peter's doing. He's saying, hey, how about this really generous number? And we know this because he's actually attempting to kind of go above what was normal for that time. Like during that time in religious circles and specifically in the Jewish faith, rabbis taught that you forgive somebody three times, right? That was like completion when it comes to forgiveness. And this was an assumption based off of stories that they read in the Old Testament where God had forgiven certain people three times. And so Peter, who was Jewish, grew up learning that three was kind of this holy forgiveness number. But then Jesus came and Jesus taught that you forgive as you have been forgiven but clearly, Peter clearly wanted that number quantified. Right? He wanted a number. So he asks, is it seven times? And what he's essentially doing is he's asking Jesus, when can I stop forgiving someone who has hurt me? When can I check the box when it comes to forgiveness? When am I done with this? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And so Jesus responds, not seven, but 70 times seven, 490 times. There are even some translations that will just say 77 times, but either way, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. 
Right? Jesus isn't saying that you keep a running count of how many times you've forgiven someone, and once you hit 77 or 490, which we'd all choose 77, you're done. It's not this idea that forgiveness can run out or grace can run out. In fact, Scripture says when it comes to love that you don't keep a record of wrongs. And so what Jesus is teaching Peter and ultimately us is that grace is a lifestyle. It's something you choose to live out every single day, no matter who is hurting you. And that was the Father. Grace permeated his life, so when his son left home, he didn't have to find the strength to forgive him. It was already there. And there are two ways to look at what Jesus said here. One way is that as someone keeps hurting you, you keep forgiving them and you keep giving them grace. Right? It's a new hurt, a new forgiveness. A new hurt, a new forgiveness. But the other way to understand this is that you keep forgiving that same person for the same hurt they caused over and over and over again, even if you've already forgiven them. And because you know this, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean everything's good again. Right? It doesn't mean the pain will go away. I think about the ways that I've been hurt in my own life, and I've done everything I can to give grace. And even though I've experienced healing from a lot of pain, when I had kids, it came back in a new way. When we started Collective, it came back in a new way. When I read scripture, it comes back in a new way. When I go to therapy, it was like refreshing all those wounds again and working through them, and then they came back in a new way. And so this verse reminds me that I should forgive again and again and again. It's a choice that I have to make daily because these wounds that I have keep opening up and the pain keeps coming back in new and fresh ways. And so we have to choose a lifestyle of grace and forgiveness because if we don't, we will never heal. Philip Yancey wrote, not to forgive imprisons me in the past and locks out all potential for change. So we forgive not merely to fulfill some higher law of morality, we do it for ourselves. Lewis Smedes wrote in his book, The Art of Forgiving, the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free, then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. If you can bring yourself to the point of forgiveness, you will release its healing power both in you and in the person who wronged you. Lisa Turkhurst wrote, staying here, blaming them, and forever defining your life by what they did will only increase the pain. Worse, it will keep projecting out onto others. The more our pain consumes us, the more it controls us. And sadly, those who deserve it the least, deserve the least to be hurt, are the ones who our unresolved pain will hurt the most. And so it's necessary for us to not let our pain rewrite our memories, and it's absolutely necessary not to let pain ruin our future. And that is why grace is a choice that you have to make every single day. Grace is a lifestyle. Now here's the third takeaway for today. You give grace because you've been given grace. Right? You can also say it like this. You forgive because you've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And Paul, who wrote both of these verses, was writing this to churches. They're writing this to people who follow Jesus and saying, hey, the power to forgive comes from your own forgiveness. You don't have to figure this out for yourself because you've received that in your own life. You're able to give that forward. And in the story of the prodigal son, we don't know the father's whole backstory. Right? In the imagery of it, in the parable of it, he represents God. But in the story, he's a father. And so maybe, maybe he is literally the most perfect father ever. 
right? Maybe he was a human person who was without sin. Maybe he never had a prodigal son moment in his own life, but I doubt that. Because the only way someone can forgive their son who wished them dead is if they themselves have felt that forgiveness before. I'm talking about grace. One way that we say it is that it's not about our character, but it's about God's. And the same is true for grace as we give it to others. It's not about their character. It's about our own. And if you are a follower of Christ, your character says that you have been forgiven, so you forgive. And honestly, that's why some of you are going to struggle with this topic today. That's why some of you struggle with grace and forgiveness. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because you've never truly experienced it in your own life. You've never felt the cleansing grace that Jesus died and resurrected to give us. You've never felt the weight of sin lifted off you as you choose the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so let me just say this to those of you who don't follow Jesus. If you take the applications to heart today, you will see a positive impact in your life. You really will. You will have a better marriage. It'll help you have better relationships. It will help you carry less shame. You'll see personal growth in your life if you take the applications to heart today but you will struggle through it more than you need to because you have never felt in your own life the freeing grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so if you truly want to be a person who gives grace and gives forgiveness and brings that out into the world, you have to receive it first. You have to feel it in your own life to actually understand how to give it to other people. So that's where you start. You choose grace and forgiveness, but ultimately you choose Jesus. And so for some of you, that is where you have to begin today. And if you are ready for that or you are looking for that or just want to have a conversation about what that looks like, we encourage you to check the baptism box on your digital connection card. Someone from staff will call you this week and we'll talk. What does it look like to receive grace and allow that to power the grace that you give to the world? My favorite scene from any musical comes from Les Mis. Every time I watch it, it just brings me to tears. Sentenced to a 19-year prison term of hard labor for the crime of stealing bread, Jean Valjean gradually hardens into a tough convict. No one could beat him in a fight. No one could break his will. Eventually, Valjean earns his release, but because convicts in those days had to carry identity cards, no innkeeper would let a dangerous felon spend the night. So for four days, he wandered the village road seeking shelter uh, against the weather until finally a kind bishop had mercy on him. That night, Valjean, Jean Valjean lay in an overcomfortable bed, rummaged through the cupboard for the family's silver, and crept off into the darkness. The next morning, three policemen knocked on the bishop's door with Valjean in tow. They had caught the convict in flight with the silver and were ready to put him in chains for life. But the bishop responded in a way that no one, especially Valjean, expected. He said, so here you are. I'm delighted to see you. See you. Have, had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth five or 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Jean Valjean's eyes widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression that words could not convey. Valjean was no thief, the bishop assured the policeman. This silver was my gift to him. When the police withdrew, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guest, now speechless and trembling, and then said this, do not forget, do not ever forget, said the bishop, that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. The power of this bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge, changed Jean Valjean's life forever. A naked encounter with forgiveness, especially since he never repented. He never said sorry. He was caught and brought back to him. But this melted the granite defenses of his soul. 
If you know the story, you know how it goes. He eventually gives grace to other people who don't know how to accept, and it's the end of them. Right? Grace and forgiveness are life-giving and life-changing. And when we experience those things in our own life, like we feel that in our souls. But it's not just for us to receive, but to give. Right? We can't just love it when someone says things like, grace is infinite. Grace means your slate is wiped clean. Grace demands nothing from us. Grace comes free of charge to people who don't deserve it. We can't love that for our own life and then decide that same grace isn't something that we have to extend to other people. And so it's easy to look at this story of the prodigal son and connect with him, to want that grace, to receive that grace. But the truth is, once we receive it, we become the father in the story. The person then brings that grace to other people who are undeserving, just like we should. Let's pray. God, I think it's really easy um, I think it's really easy for us to, to, to think about the concept or, or hear the concept of, of receiving grace and, and feel good. God, to feel the warm and fuzzies, to um, feel like a weight is lifted off of us because, God, ultimately, we, we want to receive grace. God, we need to receive grace in our own lives. But, God, when we start talking about forgiving people and giving them grace, that's when it becomes difficult. God, that, that's when we put these walls up. That's when we put these barriers up. That's when we kind of take, take a step back from our faith and from grace and even from you because we're not quite sure. But God, as we read this story and we read not just about the son but the father as well, God, I pray that we wrestle with both of these things. God, for people who aren't following Jesus, I pray that they look at the son and think, maybe I could be that person. But for people who are following Jesus, God, I pray that they look at the father and think, maybe I can be that person. Not just someone who's received grace, but someone who brings grace to this world. So God, this week, as we wrestle with this topic, um, God, as we're sitting here and we're listening, uh, we've got that person in our mind that we know doesn't deserve any of this. God, I pray this week we move closer to extending this gift to them, to forgiving them, to giving them grace. Ultimately, God, letting go of the things that we're holding on to so that we don't continue to feel the pain we feel every single day. And God, I pray as we do that, that we feel that freedom. God, that we feel that weight taken off us, that we feel that grace in our souls. God, because we realize it's not, it's not about us. It's about you and what you're doing in our life that we get to bring forward to other people. God, thank you so much for the grace that we experience in our own lives. God, give us the strength to then give that to other people. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.